What evil lurks in the hearts of men? The shadow knows. (laughs) (laughs) This is the shadow. My hypnotic power, I've clouded your mind. (laughs) The shadow! Yes, the shadow. I'll be there in every empty room, as inevitable as your guilty conscience. Because her name is Justice, and her revenge for your mockery will be death. Agents of the Shadow, report! For we return with another exciting edition of The Shadow Cast, the only podcast exclusively devoted to the dark avenger of pulps, comics, radio serials, and film, The Shadow. And we have a jam packed show today where I am not only going to discuss probably the most legendary Shadow comic series of the 20th century. The one written by Denny O'Neill and illustrated by Michael Kaluta, the 1973 DC Comics Shadow series. Part of a great big relaunch in the 70s, back when all of the pulps were reprinted. There was going to be possibly a cartoon series. We'll talk about all of these, and I'll give a detailed issue-by-issue breakdown of every single issue of that comic series. But before we do that... There is some very relevant news, and in order to talk about it, I have to talk about some previous news that I somehow, I recorded a whole segment back in November when this was reported, and somehow I forgot to put it in one of the podcasts. So we'll go ahead and cover that real quick, and then we'll talk about the big news that's happening, because folks, there may be a chance for a shadow TV series on a streaming service of some kind. But before we talk about that and why I think that might be a possibility, I have to talk about an announcement that was made on the Sanctum Books Facebook page. As many of you know, I've been recommending that you read the Shadow Pulps that are published by Sanctum Books and uh, released by Nostalgia Enterprises or what have you. And Anthony Tolan and Will Murray, two great big Shadow fans. Will Murray was in, involved in, uh, I think, Duand Magazine. And Anthony Tolan has been noted as a Shadow historian for many years, acquainted with Walter B. Gibson. They took upon themselves several years ago the tireless work of, for the first time ever, bringing back into print the Shadow Pulps unedited, the original published versions with all of the original artwork. I mean, we really can't thank them enough for taking this service upon them because these stories are fantastic. These are a formative part, a cornerstone of really American pop culture. And these guys took it upon themselves to basically bring this back to the public. Can't thank them enough. But we got some very, very sad news back in November. And I'll now read directly from... The post on the Sanctum Books Facebook. An open letter to Sanctum Books customers. The Sanctum Books shadow reprints will end this December with Volume 151. Anthony Tolan and Will Murray are doing everything we possibly can to get as many shadow novels completed as possible this month. And we're waiting until mid-November to make an official press release announcement so that we could devote that time to trying to complete the reprint series rather than spending important deadline time answering questions. Now here's the interesting bet. With very little notice, I learned last month that A, the printing company that has printed all my books was closing down and has this past week completed its final printing job. This was back in November, mind you. 
and B, Condé Nast would not renew rights and that I had to complete publication of new books before December 31st. Please note that Radio Spirits and Dynamite have previously ceased releasing SNS and Otam radio shows and shadow comic books. Condé Nast did not make a fortune on this, and half of what they've received in royalties has been shared with the Gibson estate. It's to Condé Nast's credit that they permitted this reprint project at all, along with Will Murray's new Doc Savage and Shadow novels. And while Whitehall Printing had been giving me priority service and turning around books a week after proofs were okayed, the new printer will require the industry standard four to six weeks, meaning that all books would have to be to the printer before Thanksgiving. This is, of course, the Thanksgiving of last year. I've doubled up both size and frequency of the final books and will publish four double-sized 200-page volumes by the end of the year at a slightly higher $19.95 list price. By doing so, Will Murray and I were able to schedule things so that all of Walter Gibson's and Theodore Tinsley's shadow novels would be reprinted, and the only leftovers are just three of Bruce Elliott's weaker entries. I have to actually lament that a little bit. I like Bruce Elliott. He gets dumped on a lot, but uh, I, for, if for no other reason than the fact that I'm a completionist, I wish that we could have gotten those three entries. But who knows? Maybe we can work something out down the road. You never know. Uh, that also meant recruiting another proofreader and so forth. P- pretty much all of this is uh, information that, that's not terribly pertinent. But that's the news that basically shortly after we learned that Dynamite Comics is no longer going to have the Shadow License, surprise, surprise, Sanctum Books doesn't either, and the pulps are going to have to cease print publication. Now, on the face of it, this is bad. There were a lot of people reacting with, you know, frowny faces and saying, oh, this is a shame. Why isn't Condé Nast doing with this, doing anything with this property? And I have to say, I actually think this might be an encouraging sign. And we just got news that verifies that. Now, back when I recorded the segment that I did not put in an episode, I said at the time, this could actually be a good thing. Because generally what will happen is when a company is preparing to make a great big push with a character or a property, they tend to pull the licenses and then find someone else to take the licenses and then they make a big wave of published material because they like these things to be coordinated, right? Big conglomerates love coordination like that. And as evidence of this fact, I would point to the comic that we're going to cover today, which is, of course, published in the 1970s and was part of a a wave of shadow media that was supposed to come out. Some of it did, like the comics and the reprints of the pulps, but uh, some of it didn't. There was supposed to be a TV show. There was even talk of a movie. Uh, Neither of those actually came to be. The same thing happened in or around 2011. I found a story, actually, from 2011 where it was discussing a partnership with Condé Nast Entertainment. Now, Condé Nast, for those of you who don't know, is a massive media conglomerate. They're known for Vogue. They're known for The New Yorker. And like most massive print media conglomerates, they are absolutely hemorrhaging money and have been for a long time. They've tried to expand into the internet. It's been a very awkward transition for them. They seem to have found a little bit of a sweet spot where they basically throw money at celebrities and tell them to sit down and tell war stories, essentially. Um, Kind of boomer stuff, not exactly my cup of tea, and certainly more of the corporate side of YouTube, but it seems to be working for them a little bit. But all the same, Condé Nast are in dire, dire financial straits. So you have to understand, like, this would have to be a big coordinated effort, and I do believe it might be. So in or in or around 2011, there was a story that they were going to be working on this new Sam Raimi shadow film, right? Many of you may have heard of. He, many years ago, tried to make a shadow film, wasn't able to get the rights, and so he wound up settling for Darkman. 
And the shadow film that we got in the 90s was the end result of that sort of breakdown in the creative process. The director of Highlander made up, wound up making that instead. But the Sam Raimi film never came to fruition, but it was greenlit in or around 2012-2013. Well... <laughs> They started printing these pulps right around that same time, reprinting the pulps. And in or around 2012, 2013 is when Dynamite got a hold of the Shadow License. So you can see what I'm talking about here. There's coordination. They're trying to have a wave of media. Sadly, Condé Nast do not have the best track record with getting these film projects off the ground. And I thought it was kind of interesting that late last year, I, I was able to dig up a story where Condé Nast Entertainment, one of the divisions of Condé Nast that is known for television and film projects had hooked up with Sony in an attempt to get some actual online streaming programs. And they hooked up with a production studio that specializes in delivering online streaming scripted dramas to Netflix. Now, I recorded a whole story segment where I was talking about this and predicting, hey, this might mean that there's going to be a wave of Condé Nast properties coming to streaming media. Like, it sounds like they're gearing up for some television series here. Well, wouldn't you know it. February 19th, 2020, shortly after I recorded the last episode of the podcast, Doc Savage TV series from Deadline. Deadline reports Doc Savage TV series in the works at Sony Pictures Television with original film and Condé Nast. Exclusive. The Man of Bronze is headed to the small screen. Sony Pictures Television and Neil H. Moritz's Sony-based original film have partnered with Condé Nast Entertainment to develop a scripted television series based on the Doc Savage Pulp Fiction franchise from the Street and Smith Library. The project is part of the new three-year deal original film signed with the TV studio last summer. That would be the deal that I was talking about in the segment that sadly I didn't I forgot to include in the last podcast. The scripted series will chronicle his adventures featuring rampaging dinosaurs, secret societies led by dastardly villains, fantastic gadgets and weapons, death-dealing traps, hair-raising escapes, and plots to rule the Earth. Wouldn't have it any other way. Executive producing the project are Moritz and uh, Pavun Shetty, I apologize if I mispronounced that, from original film, and Oren Katsev and John Koa of Condé Nast Entertainment. Condé Nast acquired the Street and Smith Library in 1959, as I've talked about in the past. Sony first partnered with Moritz's original film to develop a Doc Savage movie, recruiting Shane Black in 2013 to write the script, and signing Dwayne The Rock Johnson in 2016 to star as the classic pulp hero. In a 2018 interview, Johnson noted that business affairs-related issues had hindered the project. Now, a lot of that probably had to do with Condé Nast's ongoing financial turpitudes. While trying to get the feature off the ground, Moritz began contemplating a small screen adaptation. He felt like with hundreds of characters and myriad stories featured in the books, the Doc Savage IP would be better served as a TV series where there is more time to explore characters. Original film has a successful track record adapting comic books and graphic novels to television with The Boys, that's a shame, Preacher, and Happy. So this is actually kind of interesting. Um, for those of you who are not aware, Doc Savage is a sister property of the Shadow at Condé Nast, and widely regarded as, as sort of the number two right after The Shadow. It's sort of a Superman-Batman situation. In fact, uh, we all know sort of the plagiarized origins of Batman and The Shadow. A similar situation happened with Superman, the Man of Steel, and Doc Savage, the Man of Bronze, and uh, who, by the way, has a Fortress of Solitude, and <laughs> that's a whole other hill of beans, folks. But I do have to commend this to your attention because this is extremely pertinent folks we just heard that they're partnering 
on streaming TV series, and they just happen to pull all the licenses for The Shadow right as this news comes out. I strongly suspect that this is a bit of a stalking horse. This is meant to test the waters. People were sufficiently excited when they heard The Rock was going to be involved in a Doc Savage film, and I would bet your bottom dollar that if this is successful, we will probably see Shadow Properties come tumbling after if they're not already in development. I have to say, if they're pulling the licenses, chances are they're already gearing up for some kind of push, even if it's not in film or on TV. There's got to be something coming down the pike for the Shadow. Companies don't just pull the licenses out of spite, folks. So interesting and possibly very encouraging news. In fact, if we're going to be casting our own sort of imaginary TV series, why don't you hit me with your best picks for uh, The Shadow and or Lamont Cranston, or heck, just give me the whole cast, who you'd like to see direct, who you'd like to see develop it. We've seen a number of very good superhero series. I almost did a Daredevil podcast instead of The Shadow because I love the Daredevil character so much, and the Daredevil TV series is absolutely exceptional, right? So we've gotten some good superhero television adaptations in recent years. Daredevil, I think, foremost among them. Who would you like to see in sort of the director's chair? Who would you like to see develop it? What kind of style would you like to see? I certainly have my ideas. And uh, maybe we'll do sort of a future Shadow movie and television special where I'll, I'll maybe invite somebody else on and we will sort of spitball what we think would work for a television show. But this is very encouraging news, actually. We're going to have a Doc Savage TV series, it sounds like. Hopefully this actually gets off the ground. That is a big question mark because Condé Nast do not, as I said, have the greatest track record with actually launching these things. Hopefully partnering with Sony, um, Sony who has many, many issues <laughs> developmentally and creatively right now, but... It does have a track record of actually getting projects off the ground, so hopefully that mitigates the problem somewhat. Which brings us to the main event here, folks. And speaking of hope for a franchise, there was a time when there was a great big wave of shadow media that just swept across. We had new merchandise. We had, gosh, I was just looking online recently. There were pictures of shadow toys and and little Micro Machines cars and a shadow dress-up set. And these were actually the ones from the 70s. There was, of course, a shadow dress-up set and toys and action figures and stuff back in the 40s uh, because the shadow, of, as I've said, was huge in the 30s and 40s. But the 70s, he had sort of a renaissance or an attempted renaissance and this was one of the signposts of that. Unfortunately, it's also one of the more short-lived of the Shadow comics and sort of started this weird modern downward spiral where I don't know if Condé Nast lacks the confidence in the property or what exit maybe it's the financial arrangement that we alluded to earlier where the Walter Gibson estate takes half of the revenue, whatever it happens to be. This was supposed to be the standard bearer for that movement, and unfortunately, it only wound up lasting 12 issues, but what an incredible 12 issues they are. We'll talk about the background of them, but first, let's just tear right in the comic, shall we? Because this is just one heck of a comic. I can't recommend it highly enough. Uh, issue number one, I forget what the title of it is, but, you know... Mike Kaluta is sort of figuring his approach out here. On the first couple pages, the look of the shadow is sort of a bit more ephemeral. 
in one particular panel, he he's like a clear takeoff of a George Rosen cover from the 1930s. Actually, the, the cover of a very famous issue of the Pulp's Partners of Peril, uh, perhaps best known as the story Bob Kane and Bill Finger copied for the first appearance of Batman. But then you'll go like two panels down and Kaluta's just back to his old Art Nouveau self. So you can sense he's sort of feeling his way out here. Denny O'Neill's voice is inconsistent as ever. The Shadow loudly proclaims his intentions in the style of the Orson Welles radio broadcast as much as he plots in the night, though within the first several pages we've already established that the Shadow's agents will feature prominently in this legendary, if brief, comic book run. The story is really a straightforward original by O'Neill dealing with an attempted experimental submarine theft. The Shadow also, I should note, he hypnotizes a henchman into coughing up the entire plan, but he does so through a bizarre mixture of motifs from the pulps in the radio show, one O'Neill has repeatedly recycled since, in that he uses his Girasol ring to overpower their mind and extract the information from the henchmen. This issue, I should also say, also introduces something of a comic trope for the Shadow, and that is the sort of reimagining of the Shadow's A1 agent, uh, Harry Vincent, as something of a Casanova. He's boozing and schmoozing with some random woman when he's summoned by the Shadow here. And this character trait, which is completely absent from the Pulps, might I add. In fact, when we're first introduced to him, he's actually trying to kill himself because of a woman, because of someone he was so committed to. Um, this, unfortunately, reappears constantly in the comics going forward. It's like they didn't know what to do with Harry Vincent, so ah, let's make him a gash hound from the Shadow Strikes to several of the Dynamite books. I guess we're just stuck with Harry Vincent the Rockhound now. Um, the plot, condensed as it is, is far and away the weak point. But the individual moments, such as the sensational closing sequence, make this one absolutely worth reading. And while Kaluta's sort of feeling his way through the early panels, by the end, he is absolutely born to draw this character. And I suspect many other Shadow fans would agree. It, which brings me to issue number two, which is The Freak Show Murders. The second issue is a condensed adaptation of a Walter B. Gibson pulp story entitled The Freak Show Murders, which was first published in 1944, and interestingly enough, also condensed into comic form in the 40s by Walter B. Gibson himself. We'll have to do a proper episode on some of the best and the worst of the original Shadow comics from Street and Smith in the 40s, because they actually are a lot of fun, and as I said, Walter Gibson was directly involved in writing and adapting many of his own stories, but this particular adaptation was sadly ruined by the art. Um, I don't mean the 70s one, but the 40s one. The 40s comic, which I actually read in preparation for this, they ruined the twist in the art. Not the quality of it, but the simple fact that the entire story is about a murder mystery with multiple suspects. And the artist in the 1940s Shadow comic, Charles Cole, decided, ah, what the heck, how about I give him the Harlequin... <laughs> How about we give him the exact same outfit as the guy who's pretending not to be the Harlequin? They're wearing the exact same shirt <laughs> from the beginning of the comic until the great big reveal, and you're supposed to act surprised. And so the second you spot this character, the entire comic is spoiled like yogurt on a water heater. It's just such, such an unfortunate... You can really see they had a real sausage factory going with comic books back in the 40s, and that one must have just gone right past editorial... Um, O'Neill and Kaluta, it must be said, to bring us back to the 70s series. Um, the adaptation here, though, in the 70s, 
O'Neal and Kaluta knocked this one out of the park. Kaluta's art was really coming along, and O'Neal, while he was still somewhat in superhero mode, he was much better acquainted with the Sherlock Holmesian aspects of the Shadow by this point. Kaluta deftly avoids Charles Cole's original error by putting the Harlequin in a full face mask and a more elaborate court jester getup so we don't immediately guess his identity in the first freaking scene. I, I do have to cringe a touch at the painfully politically correct jibe from the circus freak who's meant to be a serial chain smoker. Uh, something to the effect of, don't smoke, kids, I'll die soon because I'm doing this. Like, of course, I suppose compared to the blanket bans in modern comics, that is positively liberty-minded. But by 70s standards, I mean, it, it's kind of coming right out and thumping you over the head with a Surgeon General's warning. Uh, this at a... Much less because a lot of comic creators, including, I think, Denny O'Neill, were actually chain smokers. Um, this adaptation of The Freak Show Murders, I think, really distills not only the best elements of the Kaluta and O'Neill run, but it also hits the bullseye with regard to the Shadow's continuing influence on dark interpretations of the Batman character to this day. Like, this particular issue of The Shadow wouldn't be at all out of place in an episode of Batman the Animated Series. In fact, there's more than a few one-off Batman and even X-Men stories that come mighty close to swiping this narrative outright. This issue is simply one of the greatest Shadow comics ever published. I've heard people gripe about the cover. Actually, I was reading the letters in one of the issues, and they were they were griping. They said this is the worst Michael Kaluta cover ever, and I could not disagree more. He's doing this watercolor thing with the early issues, and it looks absolutely exceptional. I love the way the circus tent is drawn. The third issue, kind of a bit of a fake-out, because after one pulp adaptation in The Freak Show Murders, calling the next comic The Kingdom of the Cobra would naturally lead you to suspect this will be a distillation of the Shadow Pulp, the Cobra. <laughs> Which also happens to be one of the better supervillain stories in the series, in my opinion. But nope! Instead, it's sort of a soft adaptation of a radio script uh, called The Wax Murders, but sans the sort of wax figure murder gimmick, wherein a warden at a prison releases the prisoners to carry out crimes in his stead. I'll tell you where George Keegan is. He's on his way to the city right now. To add another link to his chain of cold-blooded murders. He's gone there with your full knowledge and consent. No, no. It would be a great political advantage for you to have the district attorney Armstrong, the mayor Lewis, and Commissioner Weston out of the way. Not the most original idea, but um, you're thinking it's going to be about the Cobra, but instead it's just about a prison and we're calling the head of it the Cobra. There's several indications both in this issue and in this series that Denny O'Neill ain't nearly as familiar with the Shadow as he might be with Batman. For one, the Shadow Sanctum is suddenly open to one and all of his agents, something most assuredly not true of the pulp version of the character. Nobody goes there except the Shadow. In this comic, Burbank's just kicking back with a Corona and a hot dog in the Shadow's Sanctum like it ain't no thing, and Margot and Shrevy are hot on his heels. Then there's a few other weird additions, like... In one scene, the Shadow's pretending to be a coachman, I think, so he's just, for no reason, he's dressed normally like the Shadow, he's just rocking a Jack the Ripper top hat at one point. <laughs> very, very strange, but uh, I think maybe Kaluta just wanted to draw a top hat. Uh, the anchor on this issue, speaking of the art, is horror comics legend Bernie Wrightson, part of the same Art Nouveau revival cabal, along with Kaluta and Barry Windsor Smith that helped reshape comic book art in the 70s and 80s. And if you have an eye for sequential art, I've said in the past, I've drawn comics, you can certainly detect his hand here. I'm halfway to wondering if he didn't pencil some of these pages 
outright. The opening splash reuses a big dude choking another dude while he doubles over backward gesture pose that Bernie Wrightson was known for. You can see him reuse that in Swamp Thing a number of times. His Frankenstein illustrations, he also uses that and almost everything else he did around this time. I, I only know this, by the way, because I have copied the gesture of that pose myself <laughs> in several comics that I've illustrated. Sorry, Bernie. But, <laughs> but I have. Uh, you, you steal from the best. Uh, this warden's name, by the way, speaking of uh, interesting little Easter eggs, the warden's name being Gibson Walters is kind of cute. It's a neat little tip of the hat to the father of the shadow. If I have one artistic gripe about the otherwise exceptional work of Mike Kaluta, it's it's one he shares with a lot of shadow artists, to be honest, including the Rosen brothers who illustrated the original shadow pulp covers. Like, where are the gloves? Gibson repeatedly says in the pulp stories that the shadow has gloves. If I had a dollar for every time I read the phrase gloved fists toted automatics, like I could buy and sell DC Comics itself, yet for some reason no one wants to draw the shadow with gloves on. I don't know why. Oh well. Say la vie. Speaking of which, brings us to issue number four, Death is Bliss. One of my absolute favorites of this series. Not so much for the story, but for the art which by this point was taking absolutely pristine shape. Kaluta cranks out some of the best work of his career here, including that cover, which may well be the best of this entire run. The title, Death is Bliss, is also an outright winner before you even open the book. I uh, probably should also mention at this point, Kaluta's version of Burbank, which I think he's popping up for like a third time here. Somewhat controversial in Shadow fan circles, not merely for the bizarre steampunk man monocle he's rocking in every Kaluta comic, but also for his age. He seems very, very young at first glance, but strangely enough, Babyface Burbank is actually canon. If you read the second issue of the Shadow magazine entitled The Eyes of the Shadow, that pulp story, the description actually fits. I'll now read from it. The door opened and a quiet young man entered. His face was solemn, his eyelids drooped. He walked leisurely across the room and gave a sheet of paper to Lamont Cranston. This is Burbank, explained the millionaire. So canonically speaking, Kaluta's actually correct. He even gets the droopy eyes and somnolent features down, so I'm reasonably sure he probably read The Eyes of the Shadow before he illustrated these comics, albeit with the artistic extrapolation of the weird steampunk Terminator goggles. That's why the DMV hand out artistic license, folks. I've said a dozen or more times that one of the defining traits that distinguishes the Shadow from, say, the Punisher, Moon Knight, Wolverine, or anyone else in comics that kills is that, at least in his best stories, he also achieves the ethical and symbolic victory, not merely the death sentence. And this issue is the perfect exemplification of it as a conniving criminal running a ring to fake the deaths of prominent criminals by replacing their bodies with innocent vagrants give them plastic surgery and then send them off across the Atlantic to freedom and a new life is killed in the most appropriate manner possible by the shadow by being dropped out of his very own getaway plane directly into a grave meant for one of his prospective hobo victims. I mean, that is, that is pure shadow, ladies and gentlemen. Although I have to say the shadow never fails tagline. I don't know where this comes from. It's not in the pulps. It was corny in the first issue, and it ain't any less corny in issue four. Very, very dated. Now, beginning with issue five, we enter the much-bemoaned Frank Robbins artistic 
era, which I don't think is so much down to his actual artistic merit. The man was a journeyman artist since all the way back in the 40s, but rather down to the contrast between his more workmanlike job and Kaluta's quasi-Art Nouveau expressionism. It comes out of left field in a filler issue. Kaluta does one more excellent issue, by the way. He does come back, but then Robbins is on the book until almost the very end. I think... I think DC were actually cognizant of the criticism they'd received for hiring Robbins in place of Kaluta, because in the letters column, I dug up that they actually wrote a postscript, and they said, uh, I have just enough room to remind you of Mike Kaluta's promise that next issue's Night of the Ninja will be his best work yet, suggesting, I guess, that Mike had fallen behind on his deadlines. By the way, I have reached out to Mike Kaluta to possibly uh, have an interview. I'd love to hear his take on this and all of his other shadow work, but have yet to hear back just yet. So I figured I had to get the uh, episode out regardless. Um, but, you know, falling behind in deadlines, it's understandable given his style. Um, it's very, very detailed. But the most illuminating part by far is when they add, but we really are interested in your opinion of Frank Robbins's version of The Shadow, which, I don't know, as an artist... It seems like they could see Kaluta wasn't going to be able to keep up his schedule, and thus they were testing the waters for a possible replacement already. But I could be reading over much into it. Uh, issue 6 is an excellent return by Mike Kaluta, speaking of which, in Night of the Ninja, which is shockingly similar to an episode of Batman the Animated Series whose name escapes me, I do love this issue despite the innate cheesiness of the shadow gallivanting about having pistol duels with a mustachioed ninja and it features some truly jaw-dropping panels throughout kaluta was really having fun with it you can tell he was inserting all kinds of ninja iconography into the panel setups and title page it's it clear evidence that he was just having an absolute ball it it does however demonstrate the difference between o'neill's writing style and the writing style kaluta himself would adopt on his Dark Horse Shadow comics well into the 1990s. O'Neill's Shadow is something of an amalgam between the pulps, the comics, and the radio show. In short, he's a chatty Cathy, loudly extemporizing his plans and strategy in the middle of an alley to his cab driver of all people, you know, in front of a street lamp always. The Shadow of the Pulps was much more taciturn. Like, when he spoke, he made sure it mattered, that it was pertinent to the plot, and that's much closer to Kaluta's narrative vision of the shadow than O'Neill's. The shadow says not a word for entire issues of In the Coils of Leviathan, for example. In this, you need a ball gag and a tracheotomy to shut the shadow up. Issues 7, 8, and 9, Michael Kaluta, presumably unable to keep his previous pace, was, as I suspected, outright replaced with Frank Robbins, much to the chagrin of most shadow fans. Just go ahead and ask him. Myself, I'm probably softer on Robbins than most of my fellow agents. He's nowhere near as moody or mysterious in his style. I mean, how could he be? This is the dude who drew Johnny Hazard in the 40s. He's much more in line with the artist on the original Street and Smith Shadow comics like Vernon Green or Charles Cole than someone from the same pre-Raphaelite school as Barry Windsor Smith. Look, to me, Kaluta is the shadow artist, period. But I can spare more than a few positive words for Frank Robbins, who makes up for in storytelling and action 
what he lacks in detail and prettiness. He does a solid job. That seems much worse than it is simply because of who came before. Kaluta helped define the visual identity of the shadow throughout the 20th century. It's just unfair to compare when Robbins was simply rendering the scripts he was given and attempting to tell the story, which he does very, very effectively. The scripts are similarly solid, although... I've often argued O'Neill was just a Tumblr click or two away from truly nailing the character. He steers into universal monster movie territory with Night of the Beast, which is basically The Hunchback and Notre Dame, and uh, Night of the Mummy, which is probably his best book of the run. The opening splash of Night of the Mummy with the shadow unloading his 1911s into an advancing mummy is exactly what you wanted out of a book like this. It is excellent, and it's all Frank Robbins. He does a bang-up job. But Robbins was on borrowed time from the beginning. I mean, let's just accept it. In fact, by issue seven, they were already printing letters from the first Frank Robbins appearance. And even DC's editors couldn't staunch the criticism with the final page signing off with, I imagine the Frank Robbins controversy will continue next week. It's pretty obvious in any case. Like, Robbins was hired because he was fast. But his sterling storytelling abilities more than make up for his deficiencies, it must be said. But if O'Neill's shortcomings were also becoming apparent, it's probably worth noting that Frank Robbins' final issue, number nine, is scripted instead by Michael Uslan, probably best known today as the man behind the Batman film franchise. It's nothing special, just a bit of filler featuring an acrobat killer, but his best work was yet to come. By issue 10, we introduce an all-new artist, one who flies way under the radar for my money, and that is E.R. Cruz, a Filipino artist who never quite broke it big, despite ably illustrating everything from Savage Sword of Conan to Moon Knight. He's absolutely on Michael Kaluta's artistic level, and the final three issues of this run demonstrate that fact emphatically. It also features Kaluta's last work on this particular run when he illustrates a striking cover that perfectly sets the scene for the story itself, but the interiors are all E.R. Cruz. You can see there's an uptick in quality already with E.R. Cruz jumping on the book, and it continues with issue 11, Night of the Avenger, which features a crossover between the Shadow and the Avenger, both characters with a Walter B. Gibson connection, one for Pulps and originally for radio, the other for Pulps and later adapted to the radio. The Avenger's a weird one. He's a character co-created by Lester Dent, the father of Doc Savage, and Walter B. Gibson, the sire of the Shadow. On paper, that is a guaranteed home run. In practice... It just never quite took off in the way Street and Smith intended, I don't think, which is a shame as it has several things going for it that the Shadow and Doc Savage often didn't. Namely, an uncommon adherence to continuity that was a welcome contrast to the more nebulous timetable of Doc Savage and Shadow stories of the same time period, not to mention the uncharacteristically tortured origin of its protagonist. Uh, the Avenger, for those who don't know, he witnesses his wife and daughter slain by airplane hijackers. And his sheer grief and desire for revenge turns his skin and hair a ghostly white, and his face turns into a kind of malleable clay-like substance, like a clear takeoff on the Shadow's ability to uh, meld his face so that he can be a master of disguise. 
But point being, there's some meat on the bone here. But the common belief is he just sort of hit too late in the 30s to be as big a hit as Doc Savage or The Shadow. The Avenger came long after they had tried a number of other properties, uh, The Whisperer being one of them. I really like The Whisperer, but for whatever reason, The Whisperer never, never really connected. And so they canceled those books, which were underperforming, and they tried to replace them with The Avenger, and it... It wound up being sort of second string, considered sort of a poor man's Doc Savage or The Shadow. The story is common crossover fare, where The Shadow mistakenly believes the Avenger to be a criminal, and it's ultimately revealed that it was all arranged by, you guessed it, Shiwan Khan, who appears here for the first and sadly the last time in his 70s comic run. Cruz illustrates the living daylights out of this story, and there's a crispness to his work that Kaluta's art lacked at this point. It's just a shame the story is so formulaic and hokey with the final page proclaiming the birth of Justice Inc. Like, you practically expect a brass fanfare to sound through the comic page, but it's fun, and it's one of the best illustrated issues of the entire run. Like, big ups! to Night of the Avenger. Highly recommended. And in keeping with the Night of theme, I believe after, like, issue five or six, all of the stories are named Night of the something. In keeping with this Night of theme, the twelfth and final issue of this all-too-brief, troubled 70s Shadow Run is Night of the Damned, a bit of a mimeograph of several 30s radio scripts from the Orson Welles and Bill Johnstone eras. It's pure pulp and radio era to the core, what with the, the satanic cult led by a madman with a double identity and ending with a long shrieking fall from a high tower. You could almost hear how this would have sounded on an old Emerson radio set. It's very much in line with 30s, 40s radio and pulp shadow. Very, very fun. All in all, the 70s shadow was an admirable, if unfortunately encumbered, attempt to bring the shadow of the pulps to faithful fruition in the pages of DC Comics. And generally speaking, they did just that. Though on balance, this is really more of a mix of radio, pulp, and previous comic interpretations, and less the pure pulp reimagining it has since been advertised as, I think, by over-enthusiastic fans with a bit of a nostalgia boner for it. Uh, it's really more of a mix. It's not pure pulp at all. Um, something virtually every incarnation of the Shadow comics would share from this point forward, by the way. That's not a knock against it. Pretty much every comic after this is in some way a bit of a gestalt of different versions of the Shadow. Many of you might be wondering what I mean when I call this comic book troubled. <laughs> well, beyond the ongoing game of musical artists that ended with E.R. Cruz on the final three issues, even before that, myriad, massive names in comics and even cartoons were bandied about to reboot the Shadow in the pages of DC Comics. This Shadow comic was part of a push, as I said, to revitalize the character in the early 70s, and as part of that push, a planned cartoon series reputedly helmed by comic and cartoonist legend Alex Toth was toyed with. Promotional sketches for the character were even drafted before ultimately falling through. At the same time, Bernie Wrightson was considered. We've, of course, seen that advertisement of the canned Bernie Wrightson version of The Shadow. And then, I believe, even before that, Jim Steranko, who was then painting the covers for the re-releases of The Shadow Pulps at Pyramid Books, was approached to pencil and possibly even script an ongoing Shadow comic series, but reportedly after differences with DC editorial, he would bow out of the project. That having failed, Toth was then asked to collaborate with Denny O'Neill on the very same comic, but once again, 
the artist declined, which left us with Michael Kaluta and the legendary comic book that we have today. It's Granted, it only lasted 12 issues, but looking at that troubled development history, you're almost surprised it happened at all. Uh, Starenko, by the by, was flirting with a return to the Shadow character back in 2014 when he replied to a tweet from Dynamite that referenced his work by saying, okay, make me an offer. If the money's good, I can never say no. Sadly, apparently they didn't make him a good enough offer because this would never happen for the remainder of Dynamite's publishing run, which has only recently concluded on the sourest note ever with Cy Spurrier's controversial modern reimagining of the character in 2017, which was canned after, what, five issues? It was one of those, we're going to relaunch the comic and then cancel it early and call it a miniseries kind of situations. I say legendary when I refer to this series, but you wouldn't know it to look at the available graphic novels on the market, as this run has only ever been collected once at the tail end of the 1980s, and even then, only half of the 12-issue run was ever really published. That can be found in the Private Files of the Shadow collection, which includes the first six issues of the 70s Shadow comic, and an all-new story written and illustrated by Michael Kaluta called In the Toils of Wing Fat, which in many ways presaged the work Mike Kaluta would do on The Shadow at Dark Horse Comics in the decade to follow. It is needless to say beyond ridiculous that the 1987 Shadow series at DC, which most Shadow fans have a dubious regard for at best, was somehow reprinted by Dynamite Comics, yet nary a panel of this 70s Shadow comic has been republished by the very same company for utter shame. As such, that means if you want these issues and this comic, you have to actually buy these physical issues. If you're one of the proliferating number of people who no longer have access to a comic book shop in your neighborhood, thanks to current global circumstances, not to mention an industry that seems dead set on self-destruction, I can't recommend mycomicshop.com highly enough. You can just search for these issues. They're right there. Their prices have been relatively reasonable every time I've checked and they ship laser fast, in my experience. So that brings us to the end of this episode, a possible Shadow TV series, and a full breakdown of the 1970s Denny O'Neill and Mike Kaluta Shadow series. Until next time, fellow agents. The weed of crime bears bitter fruit. Crime does not pay. The Shadow knows. Ha, 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 ha